This, this evening I'd like to talk about the healing power of mindfulness. That was the title of the retreat. Uh, but first I wanted to congratulate all of you for making it through the bulk of the first day. And I say this with so much um, appreciation and, um, and um, appreciation for what it actually takes to to do this practice, because it really is, as the Buddha described, uh, swimming against the stream. Because every one of us, I don't, uh, even if you live a relatively uh, peaceful life, every one of us has been inculcated, has been infused with the um, with the cultural um, messages from the time we were born and perhaps even before, for all I know. And so what we experience when we come on the retreat is the impact of stopping and actually feeling the residue of what it's been like to live our lives. And of course, it's a different form, so there's an adjustment there. But how have we been living our lives? When I first started to reflect on this many years ago, the difference between a retreat atmosphere and daily life, I imagined that everyone had shown up at, at the retreat, if you can imagine yourself showing up in the retreat, and you're invited to, um, you're invited to keep a completely open mind. You don't know why you're here. Well, you may not know why you're here even at this point, but <laughs> pretend you don't know why you're here and you come the first evening and the, in, the operating instructions and the instructions for the retreat are think all day, get lost in thought, <laughs> gratify every desire, feed the wanting mind, Obsess with what's next. Tomorrow. Hold on tight. Cling. We smile a little bit and our mouths turn up because we recognize that, what does this sound like? This is the the message of our lives. Run around all day. Develop your identity around how busy you are. The reason I said that just now is because I brought along one of my favorite passages from Amy Krauss Rosenthal, who's a wonderful commentator on the way that we live our lives. And so that you, ha- you may have, I say this so that you have some sympathy and some, uh, some understanding of why you feel the way you do this first day of a retreat. This is called Sweet Nothing. It's from the New York Times. How have you been? Busy. How's work? Busy. How was your week? Good. Busy. You name the question. Busy is the answer. Yes, yes. I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, Busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly, there are more interesting, more original, and more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my house. I'm itchy. Yet busy stands alone as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I'm busy is the short way of saying, implying, my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? This week is crazy. I've got like 10 caves to draw on. (laughs) Can I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there is a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase of busyness. Look at us, we're all pros now at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in hand, 
were skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. As kids, our stock answered almost every question, what did you do at school today? What's new? What's nothing. In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. <laughs> then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we each took a 180-degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that, like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing. I say it a few times, and I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated. Zenish. Nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness. A white blanket, a couple ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing, nothing. How did we get so far away from it? In uh, stumbling around for the hour or so that I had before, um, after the groups and the meal, in order to kind of put together what I wanted to say tonight, I stumbled on uh, one of the um, one of the advertisements that seems to be going around the internet that really speaks to the um, the message that is continually being, we're bombarded with. And again, we're not victims because we do this ourselves. This is, the world is the way it is because we're the way we are. But let's kind of take a look at it. And this, uh, if you look at advertising, there is this intense um, manipulation to, to encourage us to, to shop, to buy. And so you, you can see in the force of, as you sit here, how much of the time there is this habit of wanting what I don't have. Any of you feel that today? Any of you think about that later on would be better than, than this present moment? <laughs> I'm sure many times. And it's because of this kind of cultural message that we have within our own hearts, just by virtue of being human and living in this time. This is a picture of a fellow with lots of stuff. And the, and the caption is, Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger, so he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. <laughs> so the co-opting of our, our sincere yearning to find relief, to find peace, it's so cynical to actually condition the habit of leading us, as one Tibetan teacher says, everything that leads away from the truth, away from nothing, away from this present moment. So I have such appreciation that you are, um, that you are stopping to see the ducks on the still pond and that it can be quite a bumpy ride because the effect of our lives has produced a lot of tension, a lot of discursiveness, so it's not easy. So in thinking about the healing power of mindfulness, I reflected this afternoon on, on my own life and, and my own practice. And I realized that, that the practice of mindfulness has been, and of course I'm, I'm partially biased because this is what I'm here to talk about, but it has been an enormous healing force in my own life. I realized that when I began my practice about 30 years ago, I was, um, the way I would describe myself, I was completely encapsulated in what I would call the, the vortex, the gravitational field of being completely preoccupied with myself. 
Does that sound familiar? My, the body of fear was very strong. The internal dialogue of self-criticism, ruthless self-criticism when I started my practice. Almost the entirety of my mind stream was me, my, mine. And a lot of what my mind was inclined toward was um, what can I get to make me feel better? This showed up in the healing power of seeing this. this the effects of this showed up during a very, um, during a, a long practice period. I used to do a lot of sitting at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, which was kind of the sister center for those of you who are new to practice. And I was about two months into a, a meditation practice period, a three-month period, and I was starting to feel really vulnerable, as one does. There's a kind of parallel process of a kind of regression when you practice. You get really open and tender, and I, was, I felt as though I was about one year, one year old, a one-year-old. And I looked around my room. First of all, in the previous days, as I started to feel uncomfortable, I started to imagine having this thing and that thing and what I was going to do and buy and places I was going to go. And I started to see this incessant search for some kind of pleasure, which I realized later was a sign of some, well, I'll tell you, it'll come with the rest of the story. So I'm sitting one day and I'm realizing I am so um, raw and vulnerable. And I looked around my room I, didn't, I can't believe I'm telling this story now. <laughs> anyway, I looked around my room and I saw that I was in this like four or five feet by 11 or 10 feet or nine feet room where I did all my walking and sitting in the room. I looked around my room and my room was so tiny and had way too much stuff in it, or what I thought was way too much stuff. And, and I would sit and I would look at, I have so much stuff. There's this and there's that. And in this kind of state of vulnerability, I, I looked around and I was at that place where I needed somebody to just give me a good squeeze, you know, hug me or something. But there was nobody to hug me. So I kind of rolled over and I hugged myself. And when I hugged myself, I just started to, my heart just started to pour open. And I looked around the room and I noticed that all that stuff that I had actually judged it had been part of the, the vortex of preoccupation, I really saw that that was just a way that I was trying to hold myself, trying to care for myself. And the seeing of that in that light, with the light of awareness, of just being mindful of that reality, this wave of compassion came over that really remains to this day. And I and this has been a healing effect of simply being mindful, staying present in the midst of some intense emotional experience, um, intense judge, judgment. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of how simply meeting what was presenting itself with some just being, showing up, uh, anything, has this is this um, balm, is this salve that begins to soothe our mind and body. And the natural process is in that seeing clearly my own foibles, using our own mind and body as the field of awareness, quite naturally, without any pressure at all, but simply showing up. We begin, as I can say for myself, I began to move from that gravitational field of me, my, and mine, of, of preoccupation with myself, to the gravitational field, I'll call it the gravitational field of the Dharma, which I call the gravitational field of, of openness, of immediacy, of simplicity, of love, of compassion. It's not some magic, it is really simply the function the expression of uh, nurturing this habit of being present.
a lot of the coming out of the preoccupation was just noticing the fact that I was preoccupied. How many of you noticed today how much you were lost in thought? Thank you for saying so. Because there's a tendency, part of our preoccupation is to think, everybody else here is getting enlightened, and I'm lost in thought. And then we build a whole new narrative around how, around prosecuting ourselves for, for our, somehow our unique experience of suffering. But the fact is, it's completely universal. But the beauty is, the moment of noticing this, the moment of waking up to where you are, there is the possibility of understanding. There's a possibility of, of freedom. In my first insight meditation retreat, and I know for about almost half of you, this is your first retreat. Most of the insights, I would say, at least as they were experienced at the time, I would call them, and this is not original, but most of the, the first insights were what I call bad news. There was the realization that my body was all wound up, heart was tight, and in walking through this, I happened to be at the Lama Foundation in the mountains of New Mexico, at this beautiful place that could not be more exquisite, could not be more vacuous, open, and heart, you know, heart um, just really impinges on your heart. It's just so beautiful. And I'm taking a walk through the woods there where they have a lot of aspen trees and the leaves are twinkling and uh, this and that. And it's quite silent other than the twinkling of these leaves. And I could see that my mind was just racing. It was just going a mile a minute. And it was shocking to see how, how far removed I was from the rhythms of nature. But that so-called bad news probably was the cause and condition that probably as much as anything led to uh, really getting inspired to practice. And then being able to make, even for that moment, the shift from being just carried away by that, which is one thing, to noticing it. It was the first glimpse of, the, of a kind of magic that happens in that moment that we wake up to where we are. Normally, what do you do when you wake up and realize, when awareness shines through and you realize that you've been lost in thought? What's the tendency to do? I wandered again. Should have been this or should have been that. I should have been able to control this. This is a very interesting question to ask. Is it really possible? But the fact is that um, that moment that you wake up, it's... It's actually, as I think even Sharda mentioned it this morning, that moment that you wake up to where you are, realize that you've been lost in thought, or realize that you're thinking, or realizing that you're feeling something, realizing that you're hearing something, that moment of waking up, no matter where or how far you've wandered, she said two minutes, five minutes, 20 minutes, that moment of waking up, you have already arrived, as Tulku Ergen used to say, you've already arrived at the superior place. Awareness has shined through. At that moment, you have, in a sense, returned to the still pond. You've returned to the. You've returned to nothing. You've returned to openness. So easy to underestimate or overlook the power of this moment of waking up to where you are. Now, what do we do at that moment? We immediately tear our attention back to the breath. And then we say, oh, now I'm mindful, now that I'm back to the breath. But that moment that you woke up and recognized that you, were wander- you had wandered off, that's a moment of mindfulness. And going back to the breath is no better moment of mindfulness. They're both moments of mindfulness. But in the service of learning to stay present, to stay in this state of openness, responsiveness, to give ourselves a choice, we return or we anchor our attention to the, pre- to the body because the body helps keep us present, but not because it was any better than that moment that you woke up. <laughs> 
Maybe this is all obvious to you, but there is such a tendency to treat that moment of waking up as, as a moment of bad news instead of a moment of good news. Perhaps the biggest impact of practicing over many years, and, or one of the biggest impacts, is that sense of, of ordinariness that John spoke of last night. That when we are awake to the simple moments of walking, or hearing, or smelling, or tasting, or touching, when we're simply being ourselves, not the idea of ourselves, but just being ourselves. These moments are so utterly ordinary. This moment that you're sitting here, it could not be any more ordinary. But it is this ordinariness that we begin to appreciate in our practice uh, as extraordinary. Why is this moment extraordinary? I'm tempted to ask people to participate. At least for me, as I say this right now, this moment of simply being here, just being mindful, it's not so much what's present right now in this instant of waking. It's what's absent right now. And this speaks to uh, what in the teachings uh, is described as the absence of the three roots of suffering. The roots of suffering are the mind that's grasping, the aversive mind, the mind that's pushing away, and the mind that's confused or deluded or spaced out. These three roots when we are lost in them, when we follow them, they they tend to lead us into an imaginary world of, of, um, in a sense, sometimes pleasure, but a lot of misery. So this moment of simply being present is a moment that cannot coexist. Mindfulness, just bare attention, cannot coexist with grasping, aversion, or delusion. Any moment you're mindful, you may not appreciate this up to this point in the retreat, but any moment you're mindful, you can't be grasping in the same moment. Any moment that you're mindful, you can't be aversive in the same moment. If you've made that shift to knowing, you're not caught in that whatever that feeling is anymore. In a moment of mindfulness, you cannot be deluded. There is just the knowing of what's happening. Sometimes it's crystal clear, sometimes not. Sometimes it's dullness, sometimes it's not. But whatever is being known, that's a moment of mindfulness. So this is why we do not set up a hierarchy of what's a good and bad experience. We don't set up the breath as any better than any other experience. We just use it as the tool to help develop enough steadiness and composure so that we can begin to treat and open equally to the full range of of what shows up. So what are you experiencing now? And can that just be felt or known? This is mindfulness. This is, in a way, this is just being ourselves. Stepping out of the idea or story of ourselves and just being that living experience of ourselves. Just sense it as you sit here. The more that this is um, appreciated, this healing power of simply being present, and I will say that this has been probably one of the most important insights in the last many years is that it dawns on us, it's dawned on me that in some ways I'm already 
at that moment of mindfulness. I'm already resting in uh, that which I've been so busy looking for everywhere else. And so it, it's brought me to a, a, a sense of, um, of just being here and being enough, just being myself, you could say. Now, it's true that life is our teacher. Life teaches us to feel, if we learn from our life, teaches us to feel easier about ourselves. We accept ourselves. We see our foibles, this or that. But I am, I am certain that the power of the, the nurture, nurturing the power of mindfulness through these years has just brought so much more self-acceptance, so much more ease of well-being, it's an inevitable fruit of giving yourself to the practice of mindfulness. I realize this mindfulness or awareness, you, you could call it many different names. I realize it is my true home. It's my refuge. And it is through this awareness that I'm able to see, and know that I'm seeing, hear and know I'm hearing smell and know that the consciousness of smelling, tasting, feeling, noticing my thinking. In a sense, this is the only thing that seems to follow me. As the Bhagavad Gita puts it, nearer than near, nearer than the breath itself. Wherever I look, there it is. Isn't it true? What is the common ingredient in every experience that is known. It's mindfulness. Awareness has given me a sense of trust in the unfolding of my, of my life. Why is that so? Because it's just increased the conviction, maybe you have this, maybe that's what brings you back to a retreat for, for um, those of you who practiced a lot before. Because it's increased the conviction that there is no, there's nothing in the future that can improve on this moment of awareness. And it's only through my mind's temporary delusion the trances that my mind plays, that I believe that I need something more than this moment. I'm so thrilled to wake up out of that trance for a moment and another moment. Because it's not so bad, this moment. Boy, but when I'm, when I'm in that trance, Anywhere but here. <laughs> Anywhere but here. Somebody from the Minneapolis meditation community wrote this poem many years ago. Said in, and I changed a few words, so whoever knows this person, forgive me. In my life dream, I need more time. I need more money. I need more space. I need more intellectual stimulation. I need to be more assertive. I need to question everything. I need to accept everything. I need to recognize my needs. I need to move up the hierarchy of my needs. I need. And he continues in awareness. I don't need needs. Nothing is lacking. Everything has been granted wanting to only, only to trace the sense of my fullness. One of my favorite teachers from another tradition, Advaita Vedanta, says, and perhaps we can appreciate this as we practice these simple moments of mindfulness, Nothing can make you happier than you are. 
all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth that name is being conscious. In other words, being mindful. For how many of you is this moment really enough? Isn't there a strong impulse to say, oh, there, there must be something more? So the invitation, as Sharda so beautifully encouraged us this morning, just to arrive and just to find the, the joy of simply being here. Of course, that's bumpy because our mind is, you know, is quite agitated from going out of itself so often in search of what's next. But you may begin to get a sense as you sit here of, um, that you have what you need within you. And you simply need to regard yourself with the appreciation um, and kindness that you are and this moment is enough. What happens when awareness is brought to your body? This is part of the healing power. When awareness, attention is brought to the body, it brings a kind of harmony. This is why we keep repetitively connecting and uh, again and again connecting with our bodies. It brings harmony. It brings insight. Many of you describe the ins- what I call insight knowledge of how tight your bodies were. Lots of pains arose. Um, many different experiences show, have shown themselves in your body. So it brings insight and ideally it brings some sympathy for the tension that you carry around. All from bringing, applying this mindfulness to our body. It allows us to see the truth of our body. We'll elaborate as we go on the retreat the the more profound truths about our body. But at least initially we just, we experience what's the What's our experience of our body right now? How do you feel in your body? Can you not feel your body? That's often an insight that people have the first day. There's parts of the body that are just like the North Pole. They're completely unavailable. Or there's so much contraction. So much, the fear body is so strong that the trembling and the, and the people start to feel the impact of their worry. Some people talked about their anxiety today. Our yoga teacher, Catherine, uh, this evening at the meal reminded me of, of J. Krishnamurti's beautiful line where he says, it's the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. And so it's bringing this mindfulness to our body. It allows us to see the truth. This is what becomes the cause of caring for ourselves, or perhaps even as simple as changing our posture, or as simple as eating a few more nuts, or whatever it might be. It is through recognizing the truth of our condition. How does this happen? It does not happen without mindfulness. Again, when brought to our mind, mentioned this already, it wakes us up out of our trances. It is kind of a strange uh, miracle. You know, we can be lost for 20 minutes and all of a sudden there's, we wake up again. Now that's, some would call that a moment of grace, that moment we wake up all of a sudden, oh, I'm not, I'm not um, in the throes of misery. I'm actually just here at Spirit Rock. Well, that may be miserable too, but I'm not where I imagined I was. But there's some that there is some, I have some confidence that the more you actually plant those seeds of mindfulness, the more that force grows and it, uh, it, it begins to wake us up on its own. It begins to sh- shine through. And that reminds me again, it's, it's in some ways, it's not very personal, this awareness. It's shared by everyone. And in fact, in some ways, that's what makes it kind of sweeter. Uh, It's not my mindfulness. 
If it was your mindfulness, it could be, you'd just be mindful all the time, wouldn't you? But mindfulness is this, is this factor of mind that, that it's either cultivated or not, set in motion, and then it either shines through or it doesn't. And what we're doing is encouraging the, the training of this. A lot of what we do at first is there is a sense of, um, of training. And one of the beauties of, the, of teachings like the Buddha's teachings, and of course there are other teachings that offer the, the possibility of actually changing our minds, that our minds are actually malleable and trainable, and that's a good thing. And having taught retreats for more than 20 years and Actually, I was, Rachel was speaking about this, how happy people tend to be at the end of retreats. It's not just because the retreat's over. <laughs> the way she put it is people are happy because they realize that there's much more, there's so many things to be happy about, things that we tend to overlook or don't see in, in the contraction of our daily lives. But the fact that we become happy, the fact that our minds change, in a sense, is evidence that they are trainable. And it's very, it's elaborated on in the teachings in a very technical way, that initially what we're doing is we're, we're using qualities that we have in our mind, uh, that everybody has in their mind, and what we're doing is we're taking these qualities, specifically these two qualities of that, that capacity in our mind to gather our attention to the present moment, to what's happening, it's in a sense, it's gathering our attention and then to sustain that attention to whatever it is that, that we're, we're doing or seeing uh, or whoever we're talking to or whoever we're listening to. This capacity to connect, to gather ourselves and connect with what's happening and then to stay with that connection. I call this the love muscle. Every one of us has it. And it happens, it shows up in every, it can show up in every element of our life. And in the teachings, it is, it's emphasized that if you keep doing this repetitively, you just keep connecting with what's happening. Either with a broad sense of connecting or a narrow microscopic. Sometimes our mind is quite narrow, sometimes it's wide. If you keep doing this and you sustain that connection, that with that will come a tremendous sense of comfort and happiness and peace and a kind of brightness. Your mind will become quite bright and much more uh, reclaim or recover its, its, um, its inherent, um, its luminosity, its brightness. It's all of this from this simple act of connecting and then sustaining that connection. So maybe even the cor- over even the course of this most difficult day, you probably feel a little quieter. Am I right? And your senses are probably a little more open. Sounds, tastes, all this from, as one teacher says, all from from this ha- this this practice of brushing, of He uses the expression of brushing the dust of memory until the clear mirror of the mind is laid bare. This is what we're doing. We're brushing by the simple act of connecting and sustaining. So whatever it is that's showing up in your mind, if you connect with it, pay attention to its behavior, it brings, our practice brings a healing. It brings understanding. It brings a sense of wholeness, a sense of being home, a sense of enoughness and sufficiency. And how can we know that? By even checking it out, even in this moment, when we're simply mindful of what's happening. I'm bringing in uh, teachers from another tradition tonight, 
because I think they, they're not afraid to wax about the, the beauty and the power of, of, of our minds, of awareness. And one of my favorite is an ecstatic saint named Ramakrishna, who many of you probably heard or read about. But he became really amazed and fond of and, and just uh, enraptured, um, enraptured by, by the, the power of his own awareness. And he used to sit around with his friends in the garden and he would just close his eyes and he would just appreciate the power of mindfulness or awareness. And then periodically after he'd come out of his reverie and he'd open his eyes and he'd just start kind of singing or talking and he would let out some kind of song. And one of my favorite songs of his is when he opened his eyes one day looking around, he says, he said, Oh, longing mind, dwell within the depths of your own pure nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Speaking of home, do not confine your innate infinity within the mansions of name and form ideas. The punchline though, your naked awareness, your awareness alone, O mind, is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. Don't look as, remember, Ryokan, don't look for anything but this. Without mindfulness, what happens? We are simply carried around. This is not to induce fear of being unmindful, because we have lots of unmindfulness and lots of conditioning. But we're literally carried along by the winds of, of habit and karma and circumstances. And, and really, for the most part, become oblivious to that you could say that wish-fulfilling jewel that lies within our own heart, and our own heart-mind. This is what a Tibetan teacher, Nosho Kempo, said, and this is a little bit X-rated, so bear with me. He says, homage to the, to the sovereign within, mindfulness. Mindfulness is the root of the Dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the friend of awareness, of, aw of aware wisdom. So wisdom is inherent in it. Mindfulness is the support of all practices. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative, negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you'll be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness can accomplish nothing. Lack of mindfulness is a pile of excrement. Without mindfulness, you sleep in an ocean of urine. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless corpse. Friends, please be mindful. May all friends attain stable mindfulness. <laughs> Several people in the group today, you may not have realized it, but you were describing having, having experienced the liberating power of mindfulness. Several people, or one person, I, I wrote down a few things, saw that in a moment that their mind was, um, was projecting judgments, assuming other people were judging them. Any of you have that one? Just want to normalize this for the person who said it. Many people. But there was a moment that this person recognized that this was happening in the mind. And 
there's a tendency to even when we have that show up in our mind and and completely overlook that moment that it was recognized and then go into a whole new a whole new reaction to the fact that we even have that thought but yet there was that moment of recognizing it that was a moment of awareness shining through a moment of freedom of not being caught in that so i emphasize again that our practice is not about deleting these kinds of thoughts about having only the breath no other experiences it's about simply making that profound shift from being carried away lost in whatever's going on to noticing it ah the the projection of judgment is like this our friend ajahn sumedho says oh feeling sad or grief is like this feeling pain is like this so ultimately it doesn't matter what we're experiencing as long as that common thread is brought to it that common thread of mindfulness one person recognized that their mind was was going on about how they were going to in some way get back to the experience that they had last year or the last time they did a retreat and you know we all have that tendency to carry the corpses of previous retreats or experiences with us and that kind of creates a burden and a kind of veil and pretty soon you know spend the whole time looking for it but this was recognized in this particular meditator's mind and in the knowing of that there's freedom it doesn't have to be undone nothing has to be done about it just recognized and then another person uh, said they noticed all day that they were their mind was saying i can't wait until bedtime can't wait till the end of the day now of course when we're entranced by that kind of thought it turns the present moment into pure misery but when that's recognized it's a moment of freedom the same thing that when unnoticed is so tormenting becomes the, the becomes in service of awakening in service of mindfulness so try to treat everything that shows up that way on this retreat so even though you may get the sense and i have implied that that awareness is um is in a sense my true home your true home most natural to us that which follows us nearer than near if i said here if we said just be aware most of us because of the the winds of karma the 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 uh, momentum of our habits we would mostly just space out and so we need and use these tools the tool of our body the tool of of our form as sharda was speaking about the formal periods we use the containment of we're not just spinning out satisfying every desire we're practicing simplicity we're practicing renunciation not in a heavy-handed way but we're creating a form we're using the tools of practice so that we can begin to recollect to reconnect with ourselves to recover to start to sense the fragrance of that natural wakefulness that natural awareness and it's gradual in that way so be patient um be forgiving and as the lama says again friends please be mindful let's just sit for a moment in other words this is the end of the dharma talk from Hakuin Zenji All beings by nature are Buddha 
as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone in the midst of water, crying out in thirst. Like a child of a wealthy home, wandering among the poor. Lost on dark paths of ignorance, we wander from dark path to dark path. When shall we be freed? Oh, meditation, to this the highest praise. Those who try meditation, even once, wipe away beginningless crimes. Where are all the dark paths then? The pure land itself is near. Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. This talk was given by Howard Cohn at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 24, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.